Hello and welcome back to Deconstructing the Bible. My name is Jason Steffenhagen. I am the Associate Minister at The Well, a United Methodist Church in Rosemont, Minnesota. I'm a sports fan. I'm a big sports fan. I grew up playing sports. I come from a family of people who played sports. My dad played a ton of baseball growing up. We watch Vikings every weekend. We are a sports family. I played baseball in college, and I just can't get enough of a good sporting event. You know, the Olympics are right around the corner, and traditionally, our family is a big Olympics fan. We love watching the pageantry of the Olympics. We love watching the competition. We love learning the stories of the athletes, the behind the scenes, how they got there, how hard they worked, the sacrifices, the what they've had to overcome in order to get to this place how they're living out their dream of going for the gold, or even just the mere fact that they're competing in the Olympics is a miracle. And so I love getting into it. And obviously this year it's a little bit more complicated with things going on in Japan with the coronavirus and the restrictions. And uh, the Olympics are, are a little different this year. And so trying to hold that carefully, recognizing that as much as this is the celebration of sport and competition and people coming together, it also could be causing some pain and hardship for people. And so trying to sit in the tension of that um, and recognize it for what it is on, on all sides. So I grew up a big sports fan, loved cheering for the Minnesota teams, was diehard Vikings, Twins fan, uh, big time Timberwolves fan, you know, just loved the Minnesota sports. The problem with being a Minnesota sports fan, as many of you well know, is that Minnesota sports fan, other than 1987 and 1991, there's not a lot that we look forward to, not a lot that we look back on fondly. We are turning into the town that could you could make an argument has experienced some of the biggest heartbreak, whether it's all the different times that the Vikings fell short in the Super Bowl, the four different times they've done that, or the number of times that they fell short during my lifetime in the NFC Championship game on their way to a potential Super Bowl, only to have it dashed in the penultimate game. And so being a Minnesota sports fan is challenging. Now, the thing about being a sports fan, especially a young one, is that I got really into it to the point where I would not just cheer for my team, but I would outright despise the other team. I had a powerful hatred tension towards the other team. Uh, I remember especially the Twins uh, really having a hard time with the White Sox. Oh, could not stand the White Sox. Loved when the Twins beat the White Sox when I was younger. Loved every time they went in there and they swept the series. Loved every time they beat the White Sox. It was great. I remember A.J. Pruszynski was a catcher at one point in time for the Twins. And man, he would yell at other teams' players. He would shout them out. He would get in their face. He would, you know, run the bases uh, when he hit a home run and be taunting the other team. And I thought that was the coolest thing. I was such a fan of rubbing it in the noses of the White Sox. I just couldn't stand the White Sox. You know, part of being a Minnesota sports fan is that not only do you cheer for your team, but you definitely cheer against some of the other teams. Um, sometimes that's all you got, right? Sometimes that's all you have as a Minnesota sports fan is who you're against as opposed to who you're for because sometimes the season's over, especially if you're a, 
a Twins fan, sometimes the season's already over. It feels like it's over by the beginning of June, and there's not much left to root for, but you can definitely still root against the White Sox or root against the Tigers or root against, um, you know, somebody else. And so I'm not even going to name the Cleveland team, right? You just you just root against these teams and you just want them to lose so bad. I mean, we don't even need to mention the Yankees. We don't even need to mention the Red Sox. We just root against them um, with as much as we have in us because we just want to see them lose as much as we almost want to see our team win, you know, and, and hatred, that hatred is a powerful emotion. I remember getting so caught up in how I'd feel about the sports team that sometimes it would actually like ruin my day. You know, it ruined my day if they lost. It ruined my week, you know, if they got knocked out of the playoffs or something. You know, and 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 I think it kind of speaks to what we've been talking about in this um, kind of series that we've been kind of working our way through with the polarization and the dualistic thinking and the kind of us versus them mentality is that we're often defined by what we're against more than what we're for. Yeah, we might be Minnesota sports fans, Twins fans, Vikings fans, but we're really also about what we're against. We want to see the other team lose just as much as we want to see our team win. And that hatred can be that powerful emotion. And, and the, you know, there's something really kind of cool about being a sports fan is that when you create an us, it gives you something to be a part of, right? There's a, there's a community in that. There's a connection to other people. And that connection kind of provides a little security. You know, you walk around Minneapolis with your Twins jersey on or your Vikings jersey on, and there's almost a security with that. You know that you're going to get people looking out for you or, or sticking up for you or nodding at you and just kind of feeling like you're on the in crowd for that day. And, and so there's a sense of kind of meaning almost that comes with being a sports fan is that we're a part of the in crowd. Um, but sometimes part of being on the in crowd is that we really have to make sure that we, uh, that our in crowd is the, is the right crowd, is the good crowd, is the, is the group that does no wrong, right? We, you know, if we heard a story about uh, a Twins fan or a Vikings fan that that hurt somebody in the stands or at a game, you know, we would probably try to find a way to say like, well, that's not really a Twins fan. That's not really who we are. We, we aren't really like that. You know, that was probably someone from Detroit dressed up, you know, in a Twins jersey to make us look bad, right? And when we do that, what we're doing is we're creating a scapegoat, right? We're trying to find someone else to take the blame for what represents us, right? So we we want to hide um, our inadequacies, uh, you know, we want to hide the truth of the situation, which is, you know, sometimes the things we're a part of aren't perfect. Sometimes the things that we're a part of don't have it going all, all, for us all the time. And sometimes we have to own our faults, own our mistakes. And we, instead of doing that, instead of owning our inadequacies and our, our faults, we want to find something to take the blame for us. And, you know, a scapegoat, someone that takes the blame for us, someone that gets in trouble on our behalf, right? When when we're the one that maybe, you know, when maybe we're the one that's in the stands and we yell at a player or we yell at a, an opposing fan and we say something, but then when they look back at us, we look around like, oh, it wasn't me. And then we point at somebody else who's not looking, right? We create a scapegoat out of that other person, right? Like, oh no, they were the ones that threw their chip at you and hit you in the head, even though it was me, right? Like, we create a scapegoat out of that. And why do we do that? Well, because we don't want to own our inadequacies and we want to feel better about the situation that we're in. We don't want to shoulder the blame for what just happened. We want to get off scot-free and we don't want to bear the weight of of uh, the mistakes that we've made. We, we'd rather not experience it or feel it. Well, the problem with this kind of scapegoating mentality that we have 
and, and we do this not just in sports, not just in practical jokes with friends. We we do scapegoating all the time. We do this politically. We find scapegoats for our problems, right? We have these disparities in our country. We have this fear in our country and we look for, you know, well, who can we scapegoat as the cause of that problem, right? Who's the reason why we have this problem? And it might just be us. It might be our mistakes, our own privilege and power, our own misuse of our financial freedoms, our own misuse of education. But yet it's a lot easier to point the blame at someone else and say, no, they're the problem, right? And so we look outside of ourselves, outside of our group. Why? Because it makes us feel better. We don't have to shoulder the blame. We get off scot-free and we don't bear the weight of our own choices, our own sin, our own inadequacies. And so it's really fun to find a scapegoat. And we do this in so many different uh, levels. I mean, how many siblings do this to each other constantly, right? And so the problem with this uh, arrangement of a scapegoat is that it's actually a really inadequate and inaccurate arrangement. The thing about a scapegoat is that we think we get off scot-free. We think that we get off without having to have any blame or shame or guilt on our shoulders. And we think that we feel good about it. But really, that's not the truth. The truth is we really did make a mistake. We really did join a group that has faults. We aren't perfect. And we have a responsibility to those things. You know, in the book of uh, Leviticus chapter 16, and I know so many of us have been reading Leviticus lately because it's the most popular book of the Bible. Um, And if you don't pick up on my sarcasm there, you're welcome. That was sarcasm because Leviticus is a rather long and hard book to read because it is full of laws and expectations. And it can be, uh, sorry to use this B word, boring. Um, I know we're not supposed to talk about the Bible being boring, but if I'm going to be honest with you, I'd much rather read Genesis or the beginning of Exodus than have to read Leviticus. Um, The Gospels are way more fun to read than the book of Leviticus. So anyway, but Leviticus 16, I'm uh, belaboring my point here. Get to the point, Stephen Hagen. All right, here's the point. Leviticus 16 talks about this arrangement that God has with the people of Israel to create a system where the people can have their sins forgiven, their their inadequacies, the ways they've messed up. They can have that forgiven by having sacrifices. And so there's the sacrificial system, but one of the mechanisms is called the scapegoat mechanism. So in Leviticus chapter 16, Aaron, Moses's brother-in-law, is instructed how to help the people get forgiveness for their sins, and it's this scapegoat system. And what happens is that Aaron is supposed to have two goats. One, that is to be sacrificed, that means killed, and a second, that is to be kind of ceremonial, ceremonially placed with all of the sins of the people on its back. And so they ceremonially put all of the sins on the back of this goat, and then they send it out into the wilderness. So there's actually two goats, one that dies and one that is sent out into the wilderness as a symbol of their sins being sent away and forgiven. And so their their sins are sent away. So the idea here that there's no cost when we have a scapegoat, that there's we get off scot-free, we don't shoulder the blame, it makes us feel good. Well, In the actual Leviticus 16, there is a cost, right? There's the sacrifice of this goat, which, you know, that might not seem like a lot, but for someone, that goat may have represented uh, food. It may have represented, um, you know, milk and and longevity of life, right? It it had this sense of of, uh, being able to provide for the family. And so there is a cost. 
Well, the second thing is that this um, system, it actually doesn't work. Now, that's not me being critical of the Bible. That's not me saying like the Old Testament isn't something that we should listen to or learn from. Um, It just means that we have to understand the context a little bit more deeply. So let's dive in for a second uh, to a little bit more deeper context. In that context, the cost of sinning, of going against the law, could have very easily been your own personal like loss of a limb or loss of your life. There was so much um, repercussions for sin that were so violent and so bloody and so hurtful and so damaging to an individual's life or to the life of the community that this system of the scapegoat was actually a move towards Nonviolence, <laughs> as violent as it was, sacrificing a goat, it was a move towards nonviolence. Right? We're seeing less violence towards humans, less violence towards, and now we are recognizing that we can symbolically do this. And so, there's a movement in the Old Testament, even though it's still violent and it still doesn't seem like something we could possibly understand. There's a movement away from violence um, through the use of the sacrificial system and the scapegoat mechanism. The other thing that we can look at is that Jesus is moving away in the New Testament from the sacrificial system. Jesus is moving away from the uh, scapegoating system. And instead, instead, Jesus himself becomes the scapegoat. Jesus becomes the scapegoat. And here's why this is really important, because You can't externally solve an internal problem. Let me say that again. You can't externally solve an internal problem. So the people had sinned. They had made choices that had led them off the path. They had gone in a direction that wasn't in alignment with what God had wanted, and they needed to be forgiven. So there's an internal issue of their own inadequacies, their own sin, and yet they were externalizing the solution by placing it on this scapegoat. And so what Jesus does is instead of being one who is filled with sin, Jesus is the innocent one showing us that this scapegoat mechanism is actually a fallacy. Jesus is the scapegoat to end all scapegoats. Why? Because of all the people, of all the sacrifices, Jesus is the most innocent one of them all. Jesus is the one that we have no right to kill, and yet he is the one that dies. And so Jesus is the scapegoat to end all scapegoats. And Jesus really, what he's doing is showing us that the re- that this pattern of redemptive violence doesn't actually lead to redemption. So the pattern of redemption, redemptive violence is that, well, if I cause violence, then that means violence will go away, right? That if I do this violence, then it won't lead to more violence. And the problem with that is that violence always leads to more violence violence. Death always leads to more death. And so Jesus here on the cross says, no more with the death. You can hurt me all you want. I will not retaliate. You can do anything you want to me and I will not retaliate. I will not cause more violence just because you are causing violence to be done to me. Jesus exposes the myth of redemptive violence. So here's what we have. The scapegoat doesn't actually make you pure. The scapegoat doesn't actually make you pure. 
It just alleviates the problem for a while. Instead, Jesus shows us that the only way to fight violence is to overcome it with sacrificial love. The only way we're ever going to move past our sin is not if we find a scapegoat that's adequate enough, but if we recognize that we got to do something about it. By the power of the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that is within us. So the Spirit of Christ that raised Jesus from the dead, that overcame all of the pain and death of the cross, that same Spirit, that same power, Paul writes, is alive in us. And so we have the power through the Holy Spirit within us to not be people that externalize our issues, but instead work through them that we can actually no longer need a scapegoat for our inadequacies, both as an individual or as a group. And we can instead recognize that there's something we need to do internally. We are not to look for scapegoats anymore, but instead, and here's the real move, we're to become the scapegoat. What is it? What do I mean by that? What do I mean by we're to become the scapegoat? Where would you be Christ-like? What does it mean to be Christ-like in this context? If you want someone to blame who is selfish because you don't like selfish people, well, look no further than Jason Steffenhagen. He's pretty selfish. So if you thought you were on the in crowd with me, on the us crowd with me, well, I'm a pretty selfish individual. If you want someone who can be mean, well, guess what? I can be pretty mean. If you want someone to blame who is hurtful and has been mean to other people and unkind, well, I can be that person for you. If you want someone who's made mistakes, well, guess what? I'm the person who's made mistakes. I might be on the in crowd. I might be part of the us, but I am someone who has made mistakes. And here's the thing. We all are in that boat. We are all in that boat where we should look at ourselves and say, oh man, if I want to get mad at someone for being selfish, look no further than the mirror right? Look no further than the mirror. Now, it doesn't mean that someone's being selfish and has harmed you. We don't have boundaries with that person. We don't, you know, need to confront the issue and do something about it. I'm not saying that we don't ever confront anything or ever try to reconcile, or we don't ever try to, you know, work through issues with another person in relationship. But when we're trying to like overcome or cover up our own inadequacies and pretend like we are innocent because of the misdeeds of someone else that we are blaming for our problems. That is when we are living in the false system of the scapegoat. And we need to recognize that there is something more powerful going on where Jesus is owning the violence, internalizing it even, dying from it, but then overcoming it through sacrificial love. And that same power that is in Jesus, is in Christ, that raised Christ from the dead, is in us, the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome our need to scapegoat, our need to blame, our need to find someone else that gives us power, that if we take away their power, when we get power, we need to move past that. How? By the power of the Spirit, we through prayer, through communication with friends and loved ones and pastors, we have to move past scapegoating other people. We have to do it as individuals and we have to do it as communities. There's no more us and them. There's we. We are all in this together. We are humankind. We are the ones that God has entrusted all of creation to. We have to do something and we can't be running around looking for scapegoats for our problems. Instead, we have to find solutions. That means working with people across the aisle. That means 
reconciling with the loved one we've been in an argument with for 20 years. That means recognizing that your sibling isn't the end of the world and that yes, boundaries may be in, need to be put in place in relationships that are hurtful, but we can't blame everyone for all of our issues. Instead, we have to do the internal work. Let me wrap it up this way. Sports fans are just cheering for laundry. Heard this multiple times on you know, podcasts and other things. I love this. Sports fans are just cheering for laundry. I mean, how many of us, we have a player on our team and we cheer for them, we cheer for them, we cheer for them, and then they get traded or through free agency, they go to another team and now suddenly we hate that player. What are we really cheering for? Are we cheering for players? Are we cheering for people? Are we cheering for their story? Or are we just cheering for laundry because it's the laundry that we have hanging in our closet? So often sports fans are cheering for laundry. When you think about cheering for laundry, it becomes a lot less impassioned. You know, really what I'm hating is somebody else's closet. I'm hating the laundry hanging in their closet. Is that really worth my time, my energy? Is it really worth all that vitriol and hate to find a reason to belong to something when really it's just different colored laundry, all made in the same factories, made by the same people? Instead of an us and them, we need to just appreciate things. We need to appreciate passion and hard work. We need to appreciate sports. We need to be a we. Now, I'm not saying you can't cheer for your team, but maybe do so with a little less hatred towards the other person. You know, I'm not saying that you can't be a Vikings fan that cheers really loudly when they score a touchdown or a Twins fan when they hit a home run. Like, Lord knows, I jump off the couch every single time LeBron James wins a championship because I love watching LeBron win. I'm a big LeBron fan. But when they lose, it shouldn't ruin our day. It shouldn't ruin our day. Now, yes, we can be impassioned. We can, we can be frustrated when they lose, and it's understandable that we get caught up in this stuff. But let's recognize that when we attack other people, when we attack other individuals, when we get mad at someone because their laundry is different than our laundry, man, we are just critiquing each other's closets. And that is not a healthy way to live. And I know that that's overly simplistic. I know talking about laundry and closets and sports teams is not nearly the same as family members who have hurt us or politicians and political parties that have done wrong things or right things and us and them. I get it. I get that I am talking about something simple compared to something complex. However, the analogy works. We are humans. We're all in this together. And if we keep looking for people to blame, we will find them if we want to because we will keep conjuring them up and keep creating them especially those that have done a little bit wrong to us, will make them even to be bigger villains in our story. But instead, we got to stop looking for the scapegoat and learn and learn how to work through our own inadequacies so that we enter into these relationships not needing to find a scapegoat, but instead we learn to love our enemy. Why? Because they deserve love, because they're made in God's image, because they are humans, and we, we, are all in this together. Thanks for listening to Deconstructing the Bible. Please like it, uh, rate it, review it, do all the things, subscribe to it, tell your friends about it. We're excited to keep this going. And so thanks for listening to Deconstructing the Bible.